Welcome back to 9to5 Photographer. This is the podcast to help you get more shoots, make more money and spend more time doing the things you love. Now, this episode is great because we're talking about a topic that's very much in the news today, especially, it seems, with photographers and filmmakers. It's AI, artificial intelligence, and we have an expert in the house with us today. Paul Asquin has worked in AI for some time, first regarding photo editing and more recently regarding video editing. So naturally we talk about both, but we also touch on podcast editing too, given that it's very similar in some ways to video editing. Now you'd be forgiven for thinking that Paul is an algorithm nerd, and he may well be because he's very plugged into what's happening in the world of AI today. But he's also a photographer and looking at his Instagram after this recording, it seems he's a very good photographer too. But on this topic of AI, it means he also understands what's important to people behind the camera. So he's seeing things from both sides. Anyway, it's time to find out if AI really is the biggest threat to us all or whether it's something that can actually serve us. So let's not waste any more time, but instead come with me into the middle of Paris as I speak to our expert in France. It's Paul Asquin. Paul, welcome to 9to5 Photographer. It's great to have you here. Thank you for your time, especially given it's a lunchtime. It's quarter past one. And I think you're on your lunch break right now. Is that right? Yeah, I am. But uh, I've been kind of um, in a hurry to to be able to <laughs> to make it. Uh, no, no issues yet. Now, people listening to this will probably pick up on your accent being non-British, let's say that. So just for people listening to this, just describe where we are, because I could say that we're in Paris. Actually, I don't really know where in Paris we are. So just describe where we are. Yeah, we are on the 16th uh, district of Paris. So not uh, so far from the Champs-Élysées. And uh, it's a kind of um, the part of the city where you'll be able to find a lot of companies. Uh, and, uh, and it's also a kind of a wealthy place in Paris. So the Champs-Élysées are quite of a good place to, to hang around if you want to, to do some shopping. Sure. And have you lived in Paris so long? I do live in Paris, uh, not far from Montmartre, in fact, uh, which is kind of a more living place. And yeah, I'm living in Paris since um, three or four years uh, since I, I came uh, to uh, start my job. Okay, right. And tell us more about your job, because I know that it's something to do with photography slash video slash AI, but I'd love to know more about exactly what it is and how it all works. Sure. So basically, I'm a machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence uh, scientist and manager, but uh, mostly applied to photo and video editing. So of course, we often see kind of a new tools uh, that are uh, opening for people to be able to to play with, uh, like uh, for instance, you will be able to see some DALI uh, tools uh, in order to generate uh, artwork from text. Uh, you'll be able to uh, have the auto button on Lightroom to be able to kind of uh, edit your photos kind of magically, but uh, often you do not like that much the results, but it can it kind of did a, a tiny job mm -hmm. still. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm kind of playing in this, uh, in this area, in uh, photo editing and video editing. Okay, so we all, I think, I think everyone listening to this will understand a little bit about AI when it comes to using something like Lightroom or Photoshop, where it can detect certain things for you. Some people might use these features, some people might not use these features. Is this the kind of thing that we're talking about that you're involved in, or is it more advanced than that? I know it's... Kind of it. Uh, for instance, uh, before I was working on um, on a project uh, for a company where I was doing a machine learning algorithm able to predict a preset uh, exactly matching your photo and the client you are working for. For instance, if you are shooting um, like a portrait or wedding photography and uh, you are having a specific composition, maybe you have a, a bit more or less trees, a bit more or less blue colors, faces, 
like yeah, you have your composition anyway and you are working for a client uh so maybe you are yeah doing a wedding you are doing maybe food photography maybe real estate and so you know that sometimes your clients are having different moods uh they are willing to to uh to lead forward so basically uh, I was doing algorithms in order to be able to make a match between the photo you took, so your own photo that truly is uh, linked to the composition and to the clients. Um, so yeah, just to give you a, a kind of uh, example, I was able to find out that, uh, for instance, if you are working for Uber Eats Japan or Uber Eats Mexico, they are not willing to have the same photos uh, in the in the hand. So for instance, uh, Japanese uh, wants to have more saturated. Uh, colors, uh, which is quite interesting because you need in this uh, way to do um, machine learning algorithms not only linked to the photo you took, but also linked to the clients you are working for. Interesting. And who was that for? Which company in Japan? So we were working for Uber Eats, for instance, but the company I was uh, working for was in Paris. And uh, for instance, Uber Japan, Mexico was clients of this company. I see. I see. Now, you're a photographer as well. Is that right? Yeah, sure. And is this for is this for your own pleasure or is this for a professional purpose? Do you charge money for it? Basically, I've never charged any money for my photo uh, photo jobs. Uh, yeah, because like I always felt I kind of happy with both photography and engineering and yeah, artificial intelligence. So yeah, basically maybe one day I will be kind of having a hybrid uh, way of life, working for maybe both. But for now, it's mainly. Uh, a hobby, a very important hobby. Basically, if I am not working for my job, I'm doing photo and photo edition. But uh, yeah, for now, I'm not living from the second part of my life. I'm smiling while you're while you're talking right now because a lot of the time, people who do photography as a hobby would like to do it professionally and be paid for it. But equally, when people are doing it professionally and they're getting paid for it, they're having to follow somebody else's brief. They're they're having to follow what the client wants from them instead of following what they are naturally passionate about. So quite often the professionals want to be back in the hobby stage again, whereas the hobbyists want to be professional. But tell us a little bit then about how that helps you being a photographer as well when you're doing the work that you do in the world of AI with photography. Basically, the fact that you are using the tools uh, that uh, will be in the end used by photo editor is very important uh, because I think you need... Um, an experience, also a legitimacy, to be able to understand what you are working for. So if I want to propose a tool uh, that will be plugged to Lightroom, uh, but I do not know myself how to use Lightroom, I will not be very uh, interesting as an AI scientist. I need to, I think I need to be able to play with the Lightroom, to be able to edit a photo myself, to understand when I have to use contrast, RDAs, or saturation, vibrance, in order to be able to build a machine learning algorithm, I will be able myself to understand. Because this kind of this uh, black box with machine learning, the fact that you are able to train a machine learning algorithm to do something that you do not properly understand, but still you are just better at doing it if you are able to understand a bit of uh, the, the rules that are embedded into this, uh, this tool. For instance, if I'm working on a machine learning algorithm and I'm only uh, looking at uh, whites, shadows, highlights, and I do not take into account the fact that some of us are going to work with tones curves, I'm going to miss a bit of this data. Mm. And so if I do not have any sense of how, of how Lightroom is working, I will be missing some part of this interesting 
uh, information I need to do properly my job. Okay, that's interesting. So let's just address the question that a lot of people might be thinking right now, because when we hear about AI in the news, sometimes people think of it as computers stealing the creativity in the art that, that we're taking here. And other people see it as something from The Terminator or a movie like that, some science fiction, scary future world. What are we talking about here with the world of AI and photography and video? I mean, to what extent is it actually useful? And how do we get that balance between it being useful for us, but not going so far that it takes away the creativity from us? Often the AI are mostly specialized. And um, and for instance, if we speak about the arts uh, being stolen by AI. So we have recently on the news, the example of stable diffusion. Stable diffusion is a, a new tool that has been uh, open source. So it's uh, able, uh, the code of it is able publicly. Basically, there have been kind of um, um, an issue about it because they they explain that they have been using a lot of data able on the internet, available on the internet. Uh, the fact that you are building these machine learning algorithms based on artwork from people all around the world that have been posting on Instagram and Pinterest. So the AI have been able to learn on it. And also, if you can basically ask this AI to be able to just produce a scene, uh, let's say you are... Uh, kind of um, dessert, um, a dessert, dessert love guy. Uh, so you you want to have a dessert with a blue night sky and uh, and some oasis, uh, but you want this in the style of a manga artist you do love a lot. So maybe you will pick the name of the manga artist, or maybe let's say uh, Miyazaki. You love you love the work of Miyazaki, and you want to have this art style applied to this um, dessert style oasis. So basically, you can just ask the AI to produce this artwork. So if you are kind of a good guy, you you will be saying, okay, I, I was inspired by this photography and this is my template for my drawing. Or maybe I use the composition I took from uh, uh, Cartier-Bresson, for instance. Uh, but sometimes you will not say it because you, you saw so many inspirations that you do not know where does this come from. So here we are in Paris, you're French, and you just mentioned Cartier-Bresson in the world of a photography podcast. I mean, that's kind of... Uh, Cartier-Bresson had to be mentioned at some point in, in this, of course. Do you think that if Cartier-Bresson was alive today, using the tools that we have today, that his work would be radically different to the work that he shot back in the ooh, 1950s? Or do you think that the work that he would produce today would fundamentally be the same as what he produced back then? Mm, I guess it kind of depends on how people are willing or not to interact with new technologies. For instance, even if I am um, an AI scientist, I'm not very much using those uh, AI tools uh, inside my uh, own workflow. Uh, I use Lightroom, but I don't even use uh, uh, person detection uh, that are embedded inside latest Lightroom version. Uh, so... Also, you have right now, even in the time of uh, hypersensibility, hybrid uh, cameras, you have just some photographers that just want to keep uh, the style of uh, shooting uh, analogic. Uh, so it kind of depends on what you want to do with your artwork. And uh, in a, the same world, with this technology, you will be having persons shooting with the Cartier-Bresson style, not changing anything to the technology from back the 60s. Mm -hmm. And uh, you will be having people just working with a photo, but enhanced with a lot of Photoshop's features, and then fed to machine learning algorithms to be able to transform it maybe to a video. So basically, you could be doing anything. And 
it's kind of a new creativity tool. You just have to select a new path. Do you want to just keep it traditional or do you want to take some of the new features eventually for just um, a few artwork or maybe for your styles that you are going to use for the like late uh, the the new the new and the, um, the next years of your life so i'm really interested that you mentioned about e evolution about how we embrace new technology because somebody was telling me recently that when the camera was first invented traditional artists as in people that painted with canvas they were horrified about the concept of the camera because they were saying it takes everything away from creating art now we know of course that photography is art as well as well as painting. But now we have more and more AI coming along. Of course, we had autofocus that came along with cameras. And then we had eye detection that came along for the autofocus. And a lot of these things are taking away those areas where errors could be made, I guess. But I guess as well, one of the next questions is, at what point is it going too far? Because, you know, it's possible to create a bit of AI artwork where the computer algorithm, I guess, is doing all of the work, is that a fair statement or is that actually me overlooking something there? When you are opening new AI technologies, often you simplify something that was before complicated or maybe uh, time consuming. And this is not the only uh, tribute to AI. You could be having this uh, linked to any technology. The fact that before, in order to do audio editing, you had to use uh, magnetic bands and you had to basically merge them together. So yeah, right now you just have uh, as many uh, recordings as you want. You can uh, do backups, you can uh, uh, try different versions and uh, you can drop everything and start again if you want to, before it was not possible. So you, if you just look at your capacities right now, you are kind of godlike compared to a guy 50 years ago that was doing uh, audio editing. Mm. Um, so right now it's kind of the same. The fact of having these tools maybe makes the common person able to do amazing photos compared to what was possible before mm -hmm. because you are having amazing sensitivity. You don't even have to use a tripod to do clear images. Uh, you can also just, maybe it's not that easily, but press the button and have kind of a proper exposition, uh, do HDR. So you kind of open to the crowd the capacity to do uh, just a better work. And so it gives you also as experts some more time to dive into more fine arts uh, you can, uh, okay, take away this time you used before to do this uh, exposure, white balance uh, settings. And now you are kind of more able to use uh, your time and your creativity to work better on your composition or maybe take more photos. Um, so yeah, it's kind of uh, changing the way you are going to invest your time. But uh, often it's kind of um, conversion and not a replacement. So again, the way you talk about more and more people being able to take these kind of photos, I'm thinking as well about whether or not people like people like me should be worried because sometimes I've been on a photo shoot and there's a particular photo that I'm trying to take and I'm with my client. My client's got their iPhone and I'm taking a photograph with my Canon 5D Mark IV or uh, Canon R5. These are very capable cameras. But then somebody who stood right next to me, who's not a photographer, takes a photo with their iPhone and it looks fantastic because it's balancing everything in the picture. And okay, there are many qualities that you have in a professional camera that you don't have in an iPhone. We all know that. Mm -hmm. But from the client's point of view, they're looking at their picture on their phone. And to their mind, it looks better than what I'm getting on the back of my camera. Now, that's straight out of camera. I haven't touched that in Lightroom or Photoshop, of course. But from their point of view, they're now thinking to themselves, 
why am I paying this person to do these photographs for me when actually I'm getting better photos from my iPhone? That's what they think at least. At what point should we be worried as photographers? Well, basically, if you have been setting the, the whole set, basically, you, you, you told the model just uh, uh, get there and take this, uh, this posture. So you did part of this work, which is uh, more than just pressing the button, right? So the guy behind you pressed the button too, but he maybe forgot uh, that you have been doing the, the position yourself. And also, I guess, when you take a photo, you look at it on your phone, uh, but you are not going to print it on the um, on the wall anyway. So if you are doing, for instance, yeah, um, a fashion uh, photos, you need maybe to print them in a wider, more detailed uh, area. But for sure, you have to admit sometimes that just a phone camera is just good enough. If you are out there doing uh, landscape photography, often your camera is going to take amazing shots. And uh, even if you are happy or maybe nostalgic, just carrying your big uh, camera with you, uh, you know what you can do in uh, um, inside Lightroom, working on, on shadows. And sometimes it's something that you do know is not possible with your phone camera. But yeah, basically people do not know what you are talking about if you are talking uh, about uh, like color inside shadows, like, yeah, color grading. Mm. But maybe it's kind of something that is sometimes, uh, I would say, um, uh, not sensitively uh, seen by the viewer of your photo. Uh, they will see the mood of the photo, they will understand it's kind of uh, old style sepia, or maybe it's a kind of a warm or cold photo, but they do not see that it's because you have been working on the shadows. Mm -hmm. they, they do like a photo, but they don't know why they are having specific uh, feelings about it. Mm -hmm. And often it's like, it's like a, a video, um, a video maker, a filmmaker, mm -hmm. is going to use specific uh, angles, uh, aperture, range of focus, and just for this to provide some specific feelings to the viewer. But um, often when you see um, a movie, you are not uh, a trained video maker. You just feel what you are seeing, but you do not analyze everything. Good answer. Thank you for that, Paul. And of course, most of these questions that I've been asking you have been me feeling, I guess, a little bit threatened almost by AI. What are the opportunities for photographers and filmmakers regarding AI? Well, basically, we kind of discussed one part of it, the fact that if you are um, not an expert able to, uh, to do kind of good photo edition, this is uh, if you are not an expert. So we talk also a little bit about the fact uh, of an expert being able to get a bit of an extra time. Uh, the fact that you can uh, just gain time on, uh, like we we talk about uh, the link with the audio editing, uh, but also for photo edition, the fact that you are not uh, uh, like having any uh, negative prints to uh, to handle with. So if we speak about the experts being able to take advantage of those new technologies or being threatened by them, of course we can continue to say, okay, so if you are working yourself with these uh, AI technologies. Uh, if you are going to uh, use uh, automated video editing solutions I'm currently working on. So let's say you are moving from a, a one minute movie, one minute trailer, one minute uh, advertisements, and you want to go to a 15 second advertisement. And maybe you want to uh, reframe it to be vertical because you are now working for a client that is willing to have a TikTok or Instagram campaign. What you are going to do, you are going to select some uh, specific shots, uh, some uh, specific framing, and uh, you are going to create this uh, 15 second version. But maybe this is not the one task you want to involve 
in because it's maybe time consuming, uh, but it's maybe not the one with the most creativity in it, mm. doing a summary of a video. Mm. So maybe taking advantage of your time saved on this part, you are going to be able to have more time to think about new ways of creating new advertisements, uh, new traders. Uh, maybe you are going to be more on the field, uh, shooting new scenes. Mm -hmm. um, so it's all about time that you are going to invest somewhere. Of course, if you decide not to just um, do something else, mm -hmm. uh, but you are deciding to uh, maybe do even more photo uh, or video edition, uh, you are going to maybe replace in uh, in the sense some other uh, video editors. If you are doing not the job of one guy in 2020, but now in 2025, we are doing the job of five of those guys. Mm. Um, where are those five other guys? So maybe you took kind of the jobs of other persons. Mm. So it's kind of a choice that you have to do. Either you want to work more on the one task you were doing before, or maybe you want to invest this time for doing something else, mm -hmm. or maybe you can just be willing to take this time for you and. Uh, go hiking or anything else. I, I love that. So essentially, it's using the extra time that we'll be gaining for being more creative, I guess, with our work. But, because we all know what it's like when we've created a video project, we've given it to a client, and then they come back saying, actually, can we have the same video, but in but in portrait, like you suggest? They don't actually realize how much time is involved in that. And we're thinking, oh, gosh, we've got all of this work that we've just created in a landscape format, and now it needs to be in portrait. So it's more, therefore, about freeing us up to do more things. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. It's always kind of uh, just a knife and you can use this, uh, use it in either to uh, cut carrots or to, to go at war. Um, basically just a tool, the fact that you are going to save some time on these specific tasks and uh, you could be, of course, willing to just do something more creative or just uh, to do the jobs of the five other guys that are going to maybe lose their job. But uh, in a sense, I'm kind of return the, um, the usual question that uh, is, is AI going to replace our jobs? Mm -hmm. It's not going to replace your job or my job because it's uh, kind of uh, often helping uh, one user. It's not replacing someone. It's often helping someone to do a better job, even faster. Mm -hmm. And it always depends on how you want to spend this extra time that you are getting. Paul, we, we all know that AI creeps into all parts of our lives. And one area just re relating to podcasting, and I realize this isn't your field, but nevertheless, it is audio related. Therefore, it kind of ties in. But with podcasts, we do all of our own editing. So if there's a, a hesitation in somebody's voice, if there's if they stumble over their words, if there's a, an obvious um or an obvious uh, then we'll delete that so long as we don't dehumanize the conversation. Now, I believe that there are tools, AI tools, that can do this for you, uh, I imagine, with limited success. But is that something which is a realistic option for the future when it comes to audio editing as well? Because you are yourself able to look at an audio track and select if something needs to be trimmed or not. Uh, if my arm is kind of a rhythm I want to add, especially to my speech, or maybe just a kind of a noise that we need to get rid of. So yourself, you can make this uh, choice. And there is no way to think an AI will not be able to do it, the bad negation. But basically, an AI could be totally able to do it. And I guess there is already some that are able to do it out there. Even better, so yeah, there is this uh, audio cleaning. You want to be able to have a, a cleaner audio. Mm -hmm. um, there's also the fact maybe you want to get uh, able, uh, you want to, to be able to um, produce maybe shorter version of your podcast. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have a one hour podcast and you want to make it uh, one minute because you want to post it on Instagram, maybe also to appeal a new audience. So we 
can just work on two different AI tools on it. Uh, you can work on um, speech-to-text AI, which is kind of uh, well common. Uh, we want to be able to just convert our English speak uh, speech to uh, to a transcription, and we can then plug it to a summarization. So, what in my one-hour-long podcast or what in my two-minute-long monologue is truly important or truly summarizable? So then how would the AI tool accommodate when there should be a pause for dramatic purposes? Maybe someone is telling a story and they're explaining something that was about to happen and then there's a dramatic pause and then they come in with the answer and then it makes people laugh, for example, because it's big impact there. An AI tool might want to remove that that hesitation. Uh, is it advanced enough to know that it should be leaving in that pause? Well, basically, AI is built on data. So with your example, I will be able to uh, to see that people laugh after this pause, that you you maybe add a specific tone before having this pause, and that's maybe that the overall context, the sentence meaning, uh, was leading to this pause. So maybe I've been seeing one example, two examples, and then one million example, and I'm able to build an AI, which will be just very, very good at understanding what is a good pause and what is not a good pause. Oh, I see. So just building on data, you are able to kind of abstract this rule. Yourself, you will not be able to explain to a other human why this is an important pause. You'll be able to say, okay, this is important because it is a joke, but also this is important because the guy is um, uh, willing to em empathize. Uh, so there will be a lot of different use cases and it's going to be very difficult for you as a human to give all of the rules. But if you have one million examples, the AI will be able to oh. kind of see the, the lines between all of them and just make the kind of the meta rule on top of everything. So, of course, with a podcast recording, there's going to be no audience laughing because nobody is no, no, nobody's listening to this live. But the same principle applies, I guess, because the AI tool could be looking at the tone and inflection in somebody's voice maybe how they might slow down their words, for example, before that pause. But what you're saying is that with the data and looking at millions of different cases where where it is done correctly, then it's able to align itself, I guess, with yeah, sure. other versions that's been done properly. Yeah, sure. And also, um, as a data scientist, you need to be able to understand what would be the possible biases. For instance, if I train a machine learning algorithm to edit uh, flower uh, photography, and I just, after a million of trainings of this uh, AI, I then propose a wedding photography is not going to be able to work great because before I was having only flowers and now I have humans, I have a sky, I have tables. I think that was never been fed before to the algorithm. So it's the same for podcasts and audio editing. If I just train it on postcards, a podcast without anyone in the audience, and then I use it on just a conference, it's not going to be the same because there will be maybe more than two speakers, maybe there is going to be an audience and it's going to change everything. So I need to be, I mean, we need as a scientist to be able to understand what will be the possible biases. And this is the most, maybe the most important part of our job. Amazing. Brilliant. Thank you. Paul, I'm keeping an eye on time because I, I know that your lunch break is, is a precious time for you. But if anyone's listening to this and they want to find you online, how could they find you? Instagram, I presume? Instagram, LinkedIn. Yeah, I have uh, my photography, of course, <laughs> Instagram page. And, uh, and yeah, maybe LinkedIn is kind of uh, uh, the other part of my life, the fact of being a, a data scientist. Uh, so, yeah. And what's your Instagram account? 
for asking a photo. Okay, all right. Well, we'll put a link to that and your LinkedIn page uh, in the show notes. But uh, thank you very much for being here. It's been really, really good talking to you. I really appreciate you giving up your time, especially here on a, on a cold Monday afternoon in the middle of Paris. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Simon. So that was Paul Asquin, AI expert and hobbyist photographer, joining us today to give us an insight into what we can expect from AI both today and in the future. Thank you for spending your lunch break talking about this, Paul. It was great to get an expert opinion on this. Do check out Paul's work on Instagram. I'll pop a link to it in the show notes. Now, our next episode is coming out soon. But in the meantime, thank you for listening to this one. Don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.